0: You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs.
1: Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands upon which we meet today. For me, I'm on the Wajak country in the Noongar Nation and I'd like to acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. Today's episode is a continuation on the theme of atrial fibrillation. Today we're talking on the medical management of atrial fibrillation. Our guest again is cardiologist and electrophysiologist, Dr. Ben King. Ben, thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you. Good to be back. Well, let's go macro now with atrial fibrillation. Why is it important to manage and treat atrial fibrillation, Ben?
0: I think there's three gains in treating atrial fibrillation. From an overall morbidity perspective, the most important thing is stroke prevention. Even the fittest, youngest, most normal heart has a tiny risk of stroke in atrial fibrillation compared to not having atrial fibrillation. That patient may not justify routine anticoagulants, but it's still a consideration that will come even if they're equally healthy and they just become older. Of course, most of the patients by virtue of the prevalence of the disease do have elevated risk and a very significant majority of patients will will have an indication for anticoagulants in the current era, generally a NOAC. There is a perhaps less significant in terms of burden but not less serious issue which is cardiomyopathy and there are risks of LV uh, systolic failure with sustained fast atrial fibrillation. There are some perhaps harder to understand mechanistically issues to do with dilation of the atrium and perhaps mitral regurgitation so that's likely to be a growing field and perhaps more than anything most patients don't feel quite right in atrial fibrillation and most of our work is taking away nuisances, not making fantastic life-saving interventions.
1: Yeah, great. Well, let's talk about medication now. We'll we'll talk about anticoagulation perhaps first. Let's talk about the decision-making of when to anticoagulate and what medication to use. So what are your thoughts there then?
0: Yeah, so uh, the scoring system widely used and well used is CHADS-VASC. I mentioned before that the point for gender is being diminished in its significance, but, but nonetheless, if you have any points of additional risk in chads then there should be some consideration. Two points and above, the curves diverge more significantly. There is a small but significant difference at one point, and you could argue how many patients in those seminal trials were low risk and whatever else. I think the, the point here is that there probably is grounds, but there is also grounds for negotiation and, and balancing, uh, whether the one-point score patient needs to go straight on re- reflexively. In my personal practice, they're on it unless there's a reason not to be on it. And they are patients who have an indication for a NOAC. Now, if there is not a significant rheumatic valvular heart disease, and it has to be moderately severe, and if there is not mechanical valve prosthesis, in which case warfarin is strongly indicated in any case, then warfarin would be an uncommon use. Broadly speaking, there are at least as good efficacy in stroke prevention or probably better in the NOAC. There is at least as good and probably better hemorrhage profile if the hemorrhages seem to be extracranial with the NOACs compared to warfarin and therefore I think that it would be an unusual step for a patient to be on warfarin, even taking away the, the consideration of time in the therapeutic range. The simplicity for the patients, the convenience for the patients are way better.
1: Great. Great. Ben, let's sort of stay on medicine but change topics now away from anticoagulation. So we're talking about, you know, rate control and, and other fibrillation medicines. Give us sort of some of your thoughts on, on the sort of best pathways forward and, and how to sort of manage those problems.
0: Well, rate control is going to fall into three groups. Beta blockers, the dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, they are verapamil and diltizum when it's available and Digoxin. They each have their different nuances. Most beta blockers, the the specific ones, do very little for blood pressure, for better or for worse. They have other potential benefits to coronaries and LV remodelling and and the value add there I think is attractive personally. They're also very good at blocking exercise-induced tachycardia and that's certainly where I started. It's true some patients have either idiosyncratic or disease-related side effects, in which case we've got other options the calcium channel blockers they will have a bit more effect on blood pressure and so if you need a two-for-one or a patient who can't take a beta blocker for whatever reason that they're very good and uh, digoxin a bit more old-fashioned very you know gentle in small doses and can have an application it's its use has contracted very distinctly over the last decade or two personally i'm generally happy with that one of the limitations even if we take away that it's low risk of toxicity one of the limitations is it's not as good in blocking exercise-induced tachycardia. And so it might be more appropriate for the patient to be physically inactive.
1: And just on that topic, Ben, what's your inclination to fiddle when, say, someone's been on, say, a drug like, like for example, digoxin forever and are relatively well-controlled?
0: Well, well, there's proof in the pudding. So if we have good evidence to say that their overall heart rate is well-controlled and that they're not bothered due to tachycardia during exercise, then you could you could stay with it. A lot of these patients have a peculiar loyalty to their medication and we don't necessarily need to reload everything. I'm not yeah. scared to sometimes. It can
1: get quite tricky, can't it?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, okay, let's talk about treating fibrillation with some common comorbidities, so heart failure, diabetes, any, any other sort of considerations with the other comorbidities and,
0: and fibrillation? Sure are. I'll double back to the heart failure thing. Some of the most significant comorbidities are obesity and obstructive sleep apnea. The Adelaide group have got fantastic data that treating... They had certain sort of trial regimes, but I think that we can extrapolate to the way that we treat our patients in the community. Weight loss and or treatment of obstructive sleep apnea improves the AF outcomes, whether you're going to the lab to ablate them or whether you're treating them with pills in the rooms. The heart failure is a big consideration. Heart failure patients with AF, there is is the group in which Uh, ablation as a technique of rhythm control has been shown to have prognostic, i.e. survival gain. There are some other trials, perhaps more null hypothesis, but but this was pretty serious evidence that, that we lack in the rest of the patients. AF is provocative to LV function. It's also provocative to VT and VF, and therefore, we need to be pretty serious. It also has a big impact on choice of medicines. So if we control, we didn't speak about that in the last question, but the rhythm control medicines available in Australia are three, sotalol, flecainide and amiodarone. Sotalol, the main toxicity that is well-known and not that prevalent, is torsade de paso, malignant arrhythmia due to acute prolongation. And that's something that could be screened in ECG, of course, but that tends to happen more in people with, with more than moderate LV impairment. That would, they would have an elevated risk of that. Flecainide, is strongly contraindicated in a patient who's had a heart attack before, and that was a trial looking into suppressing ectopy. But nonetheless, there was unfortunately an excess death due to arrhythmia. And and mechanistically, we'd have some idea about why that is relating to scar, etc. We extrapolate that to other patients who may have scar that may behave similarly. And that's fair to a reasonable degree. And then amiodarone is probably safe from protecting the ventricle from ventricular arrhythmia but then it's got that infamous list of other organ toxicities that we would have to be really aware of, particularly in the patient who will be on this long-term without a clear end point, because some of those things relate to cumulative dosing.
1: Yeah, lots of things. And so a lot of drugs, lots of things to consider, and I guess a real need for ongoing monitoring. Just on that topic, how often would you do an echo in someone with sort of... Chronic
0: AF. Look in the workup. I would do one in the absence of a change in symptoms or the absence of a change in my planned treatment. I don't know that that would be a routine test. Of course, that's assuming that the clinical status is stable and when we're lucky it is... um,
1: Yeah, great. Ben, that's been really helpful. We've talked a lot about medication there. For listeners, I would encourage you to stay with us for the next episode. We're going to talk about non-pharmacological management of AF. Ben, thanks for joining us today
0: on the episode. Pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to the Good GP podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, send an email to thegoodgp at gmail.com. The content of this podcast represents the opinions of The Good GP, hosts and guests of the show. The content is aimed at general practitioners working in the Australian context and is not intended to represent medical advice. Any listeners experiencing symptoms or who have concerns about their health should seek advice from a registered health professional. We make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate and up-to-date at the time of recording, but welcome any feedback or corrections. The content of this podcast is general in nature and does not refer to specific patient management. We recommend all health professionals review local and up-to-date guidance. Lines prior to any clinical decisions.